We have been uh, studying the fourth chapter of Philippians, and we're learning about spiritual stability, spiritual consistency, uh, what it takes to be strong in trying times, in times of great trial, times of persecution or harassment, uh, times of loss in our families, times of confusion, times of stress and and, and challenges. Uh, We all face those. How can we be consistent in our spiritual life we've been speaking of? How can we get off uh, the spiritual roller coaster that so many professing believers seem to ride? How can we have the kind of spiritual stability that faces trouble without wavering, without doubting God? How can we have peace in the middle of trials and tests? Are, are there practical ways that can help us to be consistent? Well, there are practical ways that the Apostle Paul has been sharing with the Philippian church, and practical ways on to be as far as being consistent. Each week that we've been studying this section of Scripture, we have read verses 1 through 9 in chapter 4. And for the last time this morning, we're going to read uh, 1 through 9 again. We're going to be looking at verse 9 today, but we're going to read 1 through 9 again. They are such important challenges for us as we think about this issue of being consistent spiritually, being stable, being grounded. So let's read it. You can follow along as I read it again one more, one more time here. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Most of you know that I grew up in the Deep South in a rural agricultural area of the Deep South. My parents had migrated to the Deep South when I was a little kid to to alleviate some health issues that my mother had. She was a lot healthier in a, in a warm climate. Uh, but the rural area that we wound up living in was populated uh, by third and fourth generation Southerners. So I was the only boy on our road who couldn't trace his ancestry in one of the church, uh, in one of the country church cemeteries in the area. 
My parents and Carol's parents were in, in one of the very early migrations, uh, waves to Florida in the early 60s. At that time, there were about 4 million people in Florida. Now there are 24 million people in Florida. So I, I grew up in what I call the, the Old South. It, 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 it had some good points, and it had some not-so-good points. But one story that I heard in church several times growing up was of a ladies' Bible study group that was very concerned about a new bar nightclub that was being built down the road from the church. These ladies were quite upset about the influence that they knew it would bring to the area and all of the temptations potentially for their husbands, sons, and grandsons. So they began to pray every week that God would remove this influence from their quiet little family-oriented town. Well, one night the nightclub caught fire and burned to the ground. And at the next ladies' Bible study, they were thanking the Lord for His intervention and wondering what happened that caused the fire because the fire department couldn't find the cause. And one of the grandmothers quietly said under her breath, You know, ladies, I just decided to put feet to my prayers. Now, I don't know how accurate the story is. No one who ever told it ever offered any documented proof. And you know, as followers of the Lord Jesus, that we do not condone that kind of activity. But my point in all this is that when it comes to spiritual consistency, when it comes to living faithfully for the Lord, we have to do something. Every biblical counselor in the country will tell you that when a new counselee comes to see them and they talk about their issues and the counselor asks them what they have done about it, the number one answer is pray. That's an excellent start. But if we're going to reach any reasonable level of spiritual consistency, we have to put feet to our prayers. We have to change some things. As the old business marketing saying goes, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've already got. You have to change something. You can't just pray. You have to then get up and do something. And the, the great Apostle Paul, sitting here in Rome under house arrest, chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, as he sits and writes to his friends in Philippi, he challenges them, as we saw in verse 1, to stand fast in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. Plant your spiritual feet and be anchored in your relationship with the Lord Jesus. Then he explains to them how to do that. You pray for spiritual stability, and then you get up off your knees and you do these things that we've been talking about for the last number of weeks. We've seen so far several steps on the path to standing firm in the Lord. We've talked about pursuing peace in your relationships. You can't be spiritually stable if you've got a bunch of unresolved relationship issues. Make things right with God, then do your best to make things right with people. We talked secondly about cultivating a spirit of joy. 
Be content with God and what He's doing in our lives. Learn to lean on the Lord. Learn to be content with God and to be, be content in God. To be satisfied with God and our relationship to Him. So that no matter what happens, we can rest secure in our relationship to Him. And when we come to understand those things, we can cultivate a spirit of joy. We talk thirdly, develop gracious humility. Don't be demanding. Don't be easily offended. Remember our phrase that we believe, I believe, captures that idea of, of moderation there or gentleness in verse 5 that was sweet reasonableness don't be demanding don't get ticked off at every little thing that happens develop gracious humility we talked about then practicing the presence of God. Remind yourself regularly that God is near. He is always there. <clears throat> As Psalm 46 says, He is a very present help in trouble. He's also there watching us, guiding us, directing us. Practice the presence of God. And then we talked about growing your gratitude, being thankful in prayer. Don't worry about everything. Don't worry about anything, Paul says, but, but pray about everything. In verse 6, plead with God with a spirit of gratitude. Have the right attitude in prayer. And when we do, Paul says, the peace of God that goes beyond our ability to understand, that peace will guard our minds from becoming a spiritual train wreck. Then we looked last week at, at focus your thinking. Paul gives us a lot of ideals here, this great list of godly things to focus our thinking on. Truth, God's Word, things that are worthy of respect, things that are holy and pure, things that are, that are refreshing to the soul, things that are commendable and, and reflect godly character. Then he says, meditate on those things. Take, take an inventory of your thought life. What are you feeding on? As a man thinks in his heart, so is he, Solomon said 3,000 years ago. Very true. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. What's going on in our inner man, what we're feeding our minds on, is going to come out as a reflection of our life. We cannot expect spiritual consistency unless we desire the right things, because that's what moves our behavior. Our desires are a direct reflection of the influences on your mind. So focus your thinking on the things that are true and, and, and pure and holy, etc. Today we're going to turn our attention, turn our thoughts to verse 9. And I have titled our thoughts today, The Power of Practice. The Power of Practice. It's a very short verse, but it's packed with implications for us. Let's read verse 9 again. Paul kind of concludes his little mini-section there by saying, The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. So far, Paul has expressed to us the biblical attitudes that we need to develop. He talks, he's talked in these earlier verses about peace and joy and, and humility and gratitude. And he's challenged us in the area of biblical thinking, feeding your mind on the right things. Now he turns to, to the result. The result is biblical behavior. 
Uh, they are all mingled together. You can't have one without the other. If you think biblically, you'll have biblical attitudes. If you have biblical attitudes, you'll have biblical behavior. If you, you won't behave biblically without having biblical attitudes and focused thinking. So all three of those things go together. They, they are blended together in a way that cannot be separated. Biblical attitudes, biblical thinking, biblical behavior. They're all wrapped together. They do not stand alone. They're, they're like a three-legged stool. You take one leg away and, and you crash. Biblical thinking develops biblical attitudes which lead to biblical behavior. And, and, he, says, and he says, do these things. The things that you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. It means, it means to practice it. You may remember several weeks ago, and I may have told you a couple of times, uh, that there, there are nine present tense imperatives in these nine verses. That's, this is the ninth one, do. And by a present tense imperative, I mean this. Imperative means that it's a command. Present tense means continuous action. And, and so you have to just keep doing these things, he says, practice them. Nine times in these nine verses, he, he expresses it in the Greek language with a present tense imperative. I am commanding you to do this again and again and again. Make it a habit of life. Make it a part of your lifestyle. So what is the power of practice? I'll give you two things, and we'll develop it a little bit. We'll come back to it again at the end. What is the power of practice? The first thing is this. It, it creates a habit. It creates a godly habit. If you do it over and over and over and over and over and over again, it, it creates a godly habit. And then secondly, it makes you a role model. That's what Paul said. The things that you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these, these do. You saw it in me. Do it now, he says, and the God of peace will be with you. The power of practicing these things is that it creates a habit for us. It creates a godly habit, and it makes you a role model. We all have habits. Some of them are good, some of them not so good. And, and habits aren't just things that we do. Habits are things that we think. Habits are things that we say. Habits are responses that we have to certain situations. You've all heard the phrase, that guy just pushes my buttons. Well, you know what? You made your buttons. And if they push your button, it's because you let them push your button. Because your, your buttons are your habits. They are your habit pattern responses that we all have. We, we've all got them. We all start out with selfish ones. What's a little kid do when, when, his, when his brother comes and grabs his toy? That's a habit pattern. It's a habit pattern to grab the toy. It's to grab a habit pattern of what little brother does when it happens. We've all got habit patterns, and they're all our responses to different things. And, and when we do these things that Paul has been teaching in these last nine verses, we are creating godly habits, not only in our lifestyle, but in our, in our responses to life's situations. And then, of course, it, 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 it makes us a role model, because other people will look at your life and say, Wow, do you see what happened to that guy? And he just, he just you know, I mean, like... I mean, yeah, I mean, it just didn't blow him away. I mean, it just, I mean, did you, did you hear how that lady responded? I mean, that was like, wow, that was really cool. I went, Man, I wonder if I could be like that. You see, power, the power of practice is it creates habits in you 
and it makes you a role model for other people. The famous British pastor, Welsh actually, but uh, they put all that together, England, Ireland, Wales, and Scotland. Uh, the, he's a Welsh pastor. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book many years ago, uh, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. Wonderful book. I read portions of it long, long ago. And this is a quote from his book. He said, I defy you to read the life of any saint that has ever adorned the life of the church without seeing at once that the great characteristic or the greatest characteristic in the life of that saint was discipline and order. Invariably, it is the universal characteristic of all the outstanding men and women of God. So what is Lloyd-Jones suggesting? He is saying that living a life that is structured and organized and practicing self-discipline is the key to usefulness for God. The haphazard, ad-lib, wing-it sort of life makes it harder to be used by God. Why, you may ask? Because being dependable and reliable and predictable places you in a position to be trusted, to be counted on, to be entrusted by God with responsibility. Once in a while, when our daughters were in college, they'd call up and they'd say, you know, Dad, there's something I need to tell you. Now, I know what you're going to say. How did they know that? Well, because I'm pretty predictable, and they knew exactly what my response would be to whatever the circumstance was. Well, you, well, you know what? If, 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 you, if, you are, if you are dependable and reliable and predictable, that places you in a position to be trusted, to be counted on, to be entrusted by God with responsibility. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 4.2, he said, It is required in stewards, meaning managers or overseers, it is required in managers that they be found faithful. My father told me many times growing up concerning serving the Lord. He used to tell me, you know, Larry, he said, the best ability is availability, and next to that is dependability. He said, if you will make yourself available to the Lord and you are dependable, God will use you, he would say. He was simply echoing the teaching of the scripture. He probably told me that a hundred times. That's why I still remember it. But I want you to think about for a moment the era in which the Philippians lived. We often forget that the New Testament scriptures were in the process of being written and although copies of them were circulating and being circulated and accepted by the living apostles, they were not gathered into what we know as the New Testament for another generation or so. So Paul can't tell the, the, the Philippians to get out their New Testament and, and look up such and such a doctrine. You know, look up such and such a teaching. No, they, they, they didn't have that. They had two sources to guide them. The one source was the Old Testament, and the second source was the teachings of the apostles, both written teachings and spoken teachings. And so when Paul says, what you have learned, received, heard, and seen in me, do these things, live this way, he's simply telling them, this is your option. You, you, you've got the Old Testament, and you've got what I've been teaching you. 
The, the apostles lived and served among the disciples. Their lives were exposed to them as role models of how to truly follow the Lord Jesus. Now we'll look at these four terms here, learned, received, heard, and seen. They're similar, but they have a different shade of meaning. The first word is learned, and that comes from the same root word for disciple. It has to do with the idea of teaching, instructing, discipling, coming to understand. So I believe Paul here is referring to his personal instruction of them, both in public settings and in personal settings. In writing to Timothy, Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.10, he said, You have followed my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my perseverance, my persecutions, and my sufferings. He says, Timothy, you have followed everything in my life. And as Timothy was traveling with Paul, he just patterned his life after Paul. So he didn't have a New Testament. Yet he was just patterning his life exactly after Paul. And that's what was one of the, one of the functions of the apostles. Not only to reveal truth, but to live it so that the early church would have a model to follow. Back in chapter 3 here in Philippians, chapter 3 and verse 17, you may remember Paul said, Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. In other words, he says, follow my example and follow the example of the people who are following my example. You see, we all learn by watching other dedicated followers of Jesus. So he says, the things that you have learned from me. Then secondly, he says, the things that you have received from me. That may sound like a different way of saying the same thing, but, but, but received has the idea of accepting what you have been taught. Not just knowing and understanding it, but making it your own. Accepting it for your life. You know, many, many followers of Jesus know the right path, but they've never quite owned it as their own. They've come to Christ for salvation, but there continues to be uh, what I call a, a, a disconnect between what they say and what they do. There's a disconnect between their knowledge of the truth and the way that they live their daily lives. Some folks would say, well, they're, maybe they're not truly born again. That's a possibility. Possibility to, to consider. Lots of knowledge, but no real, real commitment. That, isn't, that is something to think about. But I also know that there are lots of true believers in Jesus who have many struggles in applying the truth to their lives and living for God. I, I, have, I have observed this in many people's lives, particularly second generation believers. What I mean by that is this, your parents knew the Lord, maybe your grandparents knew the Lord. That's the way it was in my family. My, both of my parents knew the Lord. Both of my parents went to Bible college. Both of my parents were active in church, ministry, and service. My, uh, one of my grandmothers was a dedicated follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. A bunch of my aunts and uncles knew the Lord, had gone to Bible college and served the Lord, and so forth. I'm, I'm a second, third, fourth generation Christian. i got got people in my ancestry who knew the Lord. And when you grow up, I mean, I've been going to Bible preaching churches since I was in diapers and didn't know where I was. And what, what happens is you, you grow up in this environment of, in many ways, godliness. You know, my folks were dedicated followers of Jesus. They, they, they lived the life. They went to church every week. They, they witnessed to people. They talked to people about the Lord. They took a stand for Christ. And, and you grow up in that sort of environment, 
And there comes a time, it came for me when I was, when I was in my early teenage years, where I have to actually make that mine. I have to decide, this is my life, this is where I'm going to go, this is what I'm going to do. And I challenge you with that thought. I know some of you are second generation Christians, some of you are not. Some of you are maybe the only person in your family, in your immediate family, who knows the Lord. Praise God. God reached down and pulled you out of some things. And He has redeemed you and He saved you. That's great. Wonderful. Thank God for it. But every single second generation Christian and every kid who grew up in a, in a, in a Christ-centered environment, in a church environment, has to come to a place where they make the truth their own. You may know a lot about Jesus. But have you made him your own? Have you received the truth as yours? Not just, well, my mom does this, my grandma does this, my grandpa does this, I got an uncle or two does this. No, it, is it yours? That's, the, that's this concept behind received. Paul says, you didn't just learn this from me, you received it. And you said, this is mine. This is what I'm going to believe. This is where I'm going to walk. I'm going to follow this path. This is the truth. You, you have made it your own. You have received it. And I would encourage every person here this morning, ask yourself that. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why do I read the Bible? Why do I show up for church? I mean, why, why, why am I doing this? Am I doing this because i got a bunch of relatives who do it? Or am I doing it because I have made it mine? This is my truth. This is my Jesus. This is my salvation. Hallelujah. Thank God God saved me. This is my path. This is what I'm going to walk. I have received it to my own. Paul told the Corinthian church in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he said, I declare to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received, in which you stand. That kind of gives the sense of the word usage. You hear it, you believe it, you accept it as your own, you stand in that truth. He said, I preached the gospel to you, you received it, and now you're standing in it. Paul wrote that same thing to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.20. He said, guard what was committed to your trust. The idea is that Timothy was given the truth about Jesus, the real gospel of salvation. It was committed to him. Now he has received it. He's standing on it. He's guarding it from being polluted by false teachers. It has been entrusted to him. It's basically what Paul has in mind when he says in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, the things you received from me among many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You received it from me, Paul says, they'll receive it from you, and then they'll deliver it to the next generation. You learn it, you receive it, and then thirdly, he says, heard. Third term he uses... What you heard. I know many of you know, or you remember we have spoken many times, that the, the concept of hearing in the New Testament means to pay attention with the intention of obeying. And I believe Paul is including what they may have heard from other sources besides just him. You see, in the New Testament, you hear several times the phrase, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you have heard it, Paul says, now do it. And I've given you the, the humorous illustration. I'm sure you'll remember it. You know, when you were a little kid and your mother was really chewing you out about something. And she says, do you hear me, son? 
She did not mean, are the sound waves from my mouth penetrating your eardrums? She meant, are you getting this? Are you paying attention? Are you about to do it? Because if you don't, something else is going to happen. Do you hear me? That, that's always the concept behind the New Testament word, hear. It means to pay attention with the intention of obeying. That's why Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you've heard it, now do it. Then fourthly, he says, what you have seen in me. Now we're coming to first-hand experience. He, Paul says, you've learned this by observation. You've basically, you've been observing me. Now he says, put all of this into practice. Take everything you've learned, everything you have received, everything you have heard, everything you've seen me do. Now he says, get out there and live it. Now, what, a, what, a, what, what a powerful call to do our duty as followers of Jesus. That everything we've been taught, everything that we have made our own, everything we have opened our hearts to hear, everything we have observed in our role models, now he says, do it as a way of life. And the Apostle Paul attaches a promise to this. He said, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, now God is the God of lots of things. He has many attributes, as theologians may call them. He's a God of love, God of grace, God of mercy, a God of compassion, a God of all comfort, a God of justice, a God of power, God of light, God of life, on and on and on we could go. Why does Paul say the God of peace? Because that's, that's the result of spiritual stability. We can face the troubles of life with peace. We can be content with God and with what He is doing with us. If we have biblical attitudes and biblical thinking and biblical behavior, we will be guarded by the peace of God that He spoke of in verse 7 and the God of peace. But back to our main thought here for just a moment, the power of practice. When Paul gives us this, this powerful call to do our duty as followers of Jesus, he isn't just exercising his apostolic authority like a spiritual drill sergeant trying to beat us into shape and get us into life. He is opening a door for the blessing of God and future reward for us. That is the power of practice, is that it, it, it creates godly habits and it makes us role models for those who are coming behind. And that leads to great, great usefulness for the cause of Christ and the gospel. And that leads to the blessing of God and future reward. Regular practice grows godly habits and makes you a role model for others and it unleashes the power of God's blessing on your life. Let me close with a brief reading from Matthew 7. Again, a familiar passage to many of you. Right at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. <clears throat> it's a famous Sunday school story. I grew up singing the little chorus from the time I was a little kid. The wise man built his house on the rock. But let's, let's read the verses. Matthew 7, right at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to begin to read in verse 24. Matthew 7, verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, 
Don't, don't miss over, don't skip that. He hears these sayings of mine and does them. I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Jesus said, if you will hear and do, you are wise. You are building the house of your life on a rock. And the storms of life will not blow you to pieces. That's spiritual stability. The things you've heard, learned and received and heard and seen in me, do it, Paul says. And the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to help us to take our knowledge and to put it into practice. Lord, I know most of these folks here, maybe nearly all of them, profess to know you as their Savior, and I have no doubt that they do. But Lord, we all are, and me included, certainly guilty of not always living up to the things that we know. We struggle with this disconnect between what the Bible teaches and how we actually live. What we do and what our habits of life are, what our practices are. And yet we know, Lord, that opens the power of God into our lives. When we will do what you tell us to do. When we will practice it and develop godly habits. We will be used of God in wonderful, wonderful ways. So, Lord, help us, first of all, to make certain that we know you as our Savior. And secondly, to labor diligently, to put feet to our prayers and get up off our knees and do what we need to do to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.